Right. Cool. Right. Hello. Um. <laughs> fuck's sake. Um. The History in Polyam and Pow's Podcast in association with the History Corner.org Podcasts, Articles, Reviews. Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. A king has no friends. Only followers. And foe. A new chapter of my life has begun. As prince, I spent my days drinking, clowning. Now I find myself the king. Choose your steps wisely, dear brother. They have their own kingdoms behind their eyes. I need men around me I can trust. You are my friend. I will come with you. Now you will be watched over by an altogether different king. Francis taunting us. They were my father's enemies, not mine. The screams of your men. So lull me to sleep at night. You will not topple this King Henry V of England you so underestimate. <laughs> Are you ready for what awaits us? War is bloody and soulless. This is how pieces forge. Do you feel a sense of achievement? Surrender to me! King of England. Are you scared? On me! Already I can feel the weight of this crown I wear. Cool, yeah. So, uh, welcome back. Um, I'm Chris, not Ollie, um, which is probably strange for people that are usually uh, uh, waiting for Ollie's voice, but um, Ollie is here. I am Say here. hi, Ollie. Hello. <laughs> um, today we are going to do something a little bit different, um, not something we've done before. We're actually going to do a little film review. Um, we're going to look at The King, uh, which came out on Netflix in 2019. Um, it's... Um, it's a film that essentially follows the Shakespearean um, story of Henry V um, and the Battle of Agincourt. Um, I saw it as soon as it came out. I was super excited to see it. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, and uh, I believe you've watched it very recently, Ollie. Is that right? Yes. So last week I watched it. Um, my one and only time. It's one of those things where it's been sitting on my, um, my list for a long mm. time and I'm like I'll get round to that I'll get round to that and eventually <laughs> I did so 
here yeah. I am with a lot of notes in front of me. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a little little proviso. Do expect probably quite a lot of spoilers if you haven't already seen the film. We're going to talk about the plot. We're going to talk about the characters. Um, but if you don't know the story of of Henry V and Agincourt, then you've got about what six hundred years of catching up to do. So, um, but yeah, expect some spoilers. But yeah. um, cool. So we'll kick off with a little bit of a a brief intro um, as to you know kind of what the film's about, uh, where it's set, who's in it, that kind of stuff. So, um, like I said, it's it's produced by Netflix, um, and it came out in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, so it features the teen heartthrob that is Timothy Charlemagne, uh, everybody's favourite Franco-American. Um, he is playing Henry V himself, uh, but he starts the film as Prince Hal, um, which is the kind of nickname for, for Henry, Hal. Um, and it basically follows um, Henry from a um, kind of a alcoholic, moody, emo prince all the way through to a short-haired moody emo king um and it doesn't follow the actual the kind of the true to history story of henry v but it it does stay pretty close to the works of shakespeare um in you know his his very very famous uh, henry v um which is one of the only shakespeare uh, kind of books or plays that i've actually read um through choice um i read it mm, about six months ago and it's uh it's good and it's uh, it's very very close to this film Ken, just on a side note there, um, mm-hmm. I've always struggled with Shakespeare, and I don't know if it's because it was rammed down our throats at school, but yeah. can you get sort of uh, New Age English versions of Shakespeare plays? You know what, I don't know, and I hope I hope we can. I'm sure we can. Because I feel like because... if I understood the language a little bit more, then actually mm. I might enjoy the, the show. Yeah, no, I agree, because it's... Um... They're amazing stories, and they are a little bit hard to understand sometimes if you don't understand kind of like Middle English, which not many people uh, do to the fullest. Um, but uh, but yeah, hope so because I'd, I'd I'd probably read more of them if they mm. uh, if they were. Do you know, I'm hoping that there's a an audible version so I can listen to it in the car. But anyway, I digress mm. again. So the king, yes, let's go. Yes. In um, kind of early, um, the early 15th century, the the opening scene is um, where you see um, Henry Hotspur Percy, um, played by Tom Glyn Kenny. He plays uh, an excellent Henry Percy. Um, He's kind of at the king's court, Henry IV's court with his father. um, And there's a little bit of a bit of an argument. Um, and it's um, it sets the scene quite nicely, I think, for the relationship between Henry the Fourth, so Henry the Fifth's dad, uh, and some of his um, kind of leading leading nobles. Um, what did you think of kind of the the start of the film and how it kind of sets things up? So, I don't know anything about this period in history. So this is this was all fresh for me. So I was taking it at face mm. value, um, which is nice actually because I watch a lot of historical films and. I know that some things didn't happen. So I'm watching it and I'm I'm fully engrossed um, in it. Um, but my first note that I wrote down was, was Prince Henry really that good looking? Question mark. <laughs> so that was I my mean, first note. Old, 
Timothy Chalamet is a looker. Like I'm, I'm comfortable enough to admit that he he has the the bone structure to um, you know to to go far. But um, we don't really know what Henry V looked like. But I don't think he was probably that fit, to be honest. Well, um, that's upset me. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, another thing that I would like sort of like to put out there, like, was it? Um, so the, the the court that they were in right at the beginning was that mm. kind of how court would have been set up i think to be honest i think that was just a you kind of like a, a not a casual meeting but more of a on a personal level um it does look like it's in the palace of westminster the kind of the opening shot kind of looks like it's it's certainly on the thames um so i i don't think it was a full kind of like privy council meeting but um because as you see later on in the film there are kind of grander kind of um showings of like parliament for lack of a better word like it, it wasn't really considered parliament yet yeah but um but no the the opening i like i like the interaction between henry the fourth who henry the fourth a little bit of a a divisive king um he's a usurper um so anybody that listened to our um podcast episode on the um Peasants' Revolt remembers Richard II, who was usurped by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV. Um, and he dealt with rebellions through his reign. And um, he he didn't have the best relationship with the Percys, who was uh, who were a, you know, a, a very, very um, affluent uh, noble family. Um, and they do rebel in 1403 against uh, Henry IV. So... The the battle scene that you see between where you have the royal forces led by um, Henry's brother Thomas um, and the the Percy army um, with Henry Hotspur um, that that's happened and that's that's completely legit. Um, the only issue with that is it was not um, it was certainly not how it was portrayed in the film. There was no single combat between uh, Prince Henry. And uh, Henry Hotspur, that that didn't happen. There was a full battle, um, which I understand why they didn't put it in, because probably because of budgeting, um, it's probably far too expensive to have two major battles in one film. So on my notes, I have um, so Henry fighting his French counterpart. Um, at first, I kind of found it borderline funny it seemed like two mm. weedy teenagers having a bit of a yeah. playground scrap um and then it turned quite sinister um with yeah. the, i mean spoiler alert with the sort of the stabbing in the neck um yeah it was yeah it wasn't where i thought it was going to go even though obviously i knew that it was of that kind of caliber film um mm. It, it went dark quite quickly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a cool scene. I like the scene. It's not accurate to history, like I mentioned previously. Like, there is no single combat between uh, Henry Hotspur and uh, Prince Henry. Um, the battle did take place. Henry Hotspur did lose his life. And um, the actual fighting isn't terrible. It's not the worst I've ever seen. But they do look like little boys. And I, always, I, think, I think they just... Timothy Chalamet's a great actor, and I think he does play Henry V really well in this film later. But he's not—he's not big enough. He didn't fill his armor very well. Um, 
But um, he's quite a one petite thing that... gentleman, isn't he? Mm. Quite slim. Yeah, and that's what I kept seeing. I kept seeing like a little framed, yeah. non-kingly Which... person. I I agree wholeheartedly. I think um, I think that's ex- exactly what happened. Um, but one thing they could have done with the Battle of Shrewsbury, the actual Battle of Shrewsbury, is it's quite a cool and quite an important part of Henry V's life. Is uh, he was hit in the face with an arrow. Um, and if if you look in the film, you can see a kind of like a, a three pronged scar on his cheek. Um, so they they get that right in the film. They do put the scar on his cheek, um, but they could have they could have shown that in the film because you know that's a really important part of his life. He you know he's shot in the face. He almost dies. They they have to pull the wound out while it's they sorry the the arrowhead out while the wound's still open. It's it's horrible. And Brutal. if you didn't know that obviously you've picked up mm. on the, the the marks on his face but because i don't know anything about this period of history that's lost on a lot of the audience so yeah. actually uh, even a nod to it in some way would have been good yeah i think it i think it like i said i understand why they didn't put the full battle of shrewsbury in it because it would have just cost too much money um and the actual duel itself isn't terrible i like the fact that he kind of gets him on the floor, and again, spoiler alert, he uses a stiletto knife and stabs it through the um, kind of the, the plates of his armour, which is how knights would kill other, you know, heavily armoured uh, soldiers, because that's the, you know, they would beat them and beat them and beat them with maces and axes and swords, and then they would stab them um, in the armpit or the neck or the groin, which was kind of the kill shot. So not a stiletto shoe then? No, not a stiletto shoe, but it is where we get the. Obviously, it's where we get the um, the name for the stiletto heel you know from because it's a very. I've never long, put them two things together. Heel. That's amazing. No? Like I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning today. Um, yeah, I've never yeah. put the two together. Um, well, yeah. Your mate um, James the First, who we've spoken on on a, on a previous episode, uh, James the First of England and Sixth of Scotland, he wore a stiletto-proof uh, stab vest because uh, he was so scared of being assassinated. Um, but yeah, back to um, the king. Um, after the Battle of Shrewsbury, um, we kind of see more of this young Prince Hal, the rebellious, alcoholic, long-haired, rebellious son of the king who just wants to get drunk with his friend, John Falstaff, uh, who's wonderfully played by uh, Joel Edgerton, who also wrote part of the film. Oh, um, amazing. You see, who's, who's a wonderful actor, I really like him, and I think he plays uh, he plays the character really well. Um, but um, that again, it's not the most accurate for even Henry V or Henry IV, uh, the Shakespearean work, or the true history. Okay. Yes, he probably did have long hair at some point. Yes, he did, you know, probably like to drink, and he didn't have the best relationship with his father. But he certainly wasn't ever um, cast out of the line of succession. Um, Henry V was always going to be Henry V. Um, his father never thought to put his, his brother Thomas on the throne. That was definitely um, um, a cinematic choice, wasn't it? The, the, the contrast between yeah. the having the long hair and then all of a sudden being yeah. um, being king and chopping his hair off. Yeah. It, was, it was that change um, for, for, for the audience more than fact, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, when... Obviously, Prince Henry the Fourth dies. 
he, like you said, he transforms into the King Henry V that we see in the famous portrait of the, you know, the, the very, very trendy haircut that people pretty much have all today now anyway. You know, the, the very short, cropped, um, the, the French Norman haircut. I have a note on that. Because Ooh. it was so modern, um, mm. was it modern or are we just copying the past? Um, so the haircut is very accurate from what we can tell about Henry V. He did have the... So that haircut, that wasn't a an unusual haircut. It was a very um, Christian, like, pure haircut. It, was, it wasn't long and luxurious. It was short and cropped above the ears. It wasn't too stylistic. It was very simple. It, it's, it was brought over by the Normans, who famously would, for some reason, shave the back of their heads quite quite high up to like the crown and then round the ears um, and have the kind of like bowl cut uh, and it got adapted and it carried on being in fashion and, and Henry V was a very 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 pious king um, and he took his his Christianity very seriously um, but they it's probably a a more modern more trendy you know image of that haircut because he he kills the haircut i think he he looks really good at it yeah so because there's there's scenes where he's wearing um clothing that i wouldn't necessarily expect him to wear and it, it at mm. points it looks like it could just be anyone walking down the street today yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm happy with that when he's a prince to a degree i think the simple look as a prince is is okay it's not wholly accurate, but I'm not going to be one of these guys that's hit serious like, well, that wasn't accurate, so it's not a good film. Like, it can be a good film and inaccurate, but I digress. It's not the most accurate kind of portrayal of, of Prince Henry, uh, but certainly when he becomes King Henry V, that's where the, the ball is dropped quite badly. And yes, he's got the ermine um, kind of shoal on him in a lot of the scenes, but there is no fanciness whatsoever. And let's be honest, um, a lot of these films are sexed up, aren't they, for the audience? Mm. Um, the, the the haircuts are slightly improved. The clothing is tapered a little bit more. Um, people's figures are shown off. Um, mm. Because who wants to watch a film... Well, a lot of people don't want to watch a film about maybe an accurate-looking yeah. person who is potentially... Mm. I'm not saying this about R. Henry, but... Um, someone who's lost their teeth, uh, especially uh, we, we talk about Elizabeth I. I mean, her complexion and her teeth are meant to be horrendous. Um, yeah. But you never see that in the film portrayals mm. of her. Yeah. Anyway. Whilst, we're, whilst we're on the topic of, of kind of like the stylistic choices in the film, I really, really enjoy the incorrect simplicity of it all. I think it's the costume choices, the even down to like the lighting and the choices of like location, I think they're really pretty and really nice to look at. And I think it is a nice modern twist on a uh, kind of late medieval um, period where it, they can be quite gaudy and a little bit too, you know, a little bit spicy at times. And I'm not really about that sometimes. I like the way this film is shot. Yeah. So I've got a note on that. Um, the, the, the sort of the tone of the film, the way that it's shot in kind of bleak, colors so it's very mm. it's very drab in in its color in its 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 coloring but i think that was a uh, a choice um for i'm going back to my my film days now so um i think yep. that was um <laughs> that was a a choice because actually those colors represent a, 
a, a pretty bleak sort of time of, of history. So using that tone um, sort of gets across um, the the bleakness of it all. And actually it, it worked because I was sort of watching the film like the whole way through and I had this sort of heaviness on my sort of chest and on my heart and on my, it all felt very uncomfortable and a bit grim and it was nice in places but then you knew that something bad was going to happen so for me that really worked Mm. yeah i think it's um like i said it's a great modern take on a very very old story and i think if you can look past the inaccuracies in costume choices and things like that which i will definitely touch on later it's a really nice looking film um and i i think they do a lot of it right um but um Moving on uh, in the kind of chronological chronology chronology of the film, bloody hell! You got there. Um, I got there eventually. <laughs> um, it's it's very it's made apparent very early that France is important, and that the idea of going to France is a seed that has been sown in Henry. It literally happens like instantly. Like he goes, like I said, from being this. Um, young prince to this pious king that is looking to France. Um, and I think one scene that they do very, very nicely is the kind of like after the coronation where Henry and his and his ministers and family members are all sat round uh, and he's being given gifts um, from all of the like monarchs around, around, uh, around the globe. Uh, obviously you get the mechanical bird from Constantinople, which oh, I think is great. really cool. Yeah. Such a cool scene, um, but my favourite bit is the is the tennis ball um, from from the Dauphin, the, the 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 heir to the French throne, um, which, as far as I can tell, it's a little bit of a point of contention, but that did happen. He was sent tennis balls by the the French, um, you know, heir to the throne as a kind of a goad, um, or it was seen as that anyway. Like you're a child, you're a little boy you are not, you know, you're not king yet kind of thing. And um, I like the fact that it's that it's put kind of front and centre in the film and it's kind of like a, he comes back to the ball periodically through the film, doesn't he, where he, he, he gets it out every now and again and he like looks at it or plays with it and it's it's important to him as, a, as kind of like a plot um, kind of carrier. Yeah. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that scene. No, it's um it was really nice actually because you saw like the, the first few scenes you saw that sort of that party animal and there was there was scenes of him sort of in that bed with that lady. Um mm. I'm just I I'm going to digress slightly on here but um I don't know if you're a bedding expert but the bed <laughs> that he the bed that he was in with that lady right at the beginning uh, seemed to be made out of like some sort of potato sack. Um and it looked really uncomfortable. Um, it didn't look very nice, did it? It's in my notes. I've got bedding, potato sack, question mark. So I'm guessing we didn't have the nice feathered duvets that we have to this day. Um, but yeah, that's just a, a point that I wanted to yeah. make on that. But yeah, that yeah. was a really nice scene um, when he was given the gifts. Because you saw the contrast in the change of him being sort of uh, a bit of an adolescent prince to a mature um king he was he was Mm. was kind and he was generous but yeah with the with the ball that he was given um and he had all 
his ministers around him, didn't he? Saying, "Well, that's that's quite insulting. Like, why would they? Why would mm. they do this?" So, um, yeah, that that was a, a nice um, continuity um, thing that was going on throughout the film. Mm. Um, yeah, and one of the one of the people that he speaks to in that scene is his cousin Cambridge. Um, um, who is a really, really important character in the story of Henry V, uh, along with Lord Grey, who um, you see in the film are confronted by Henry for uh, plotting against him. Um, it's not really explained very well in the film. It's, it's, it's not really too relevant to the story, if I'm honest. But in real life, it's, it's very important because Cambridge um, was his cousin. He was... Um, you know, a close advisor and a close friend, um, as was Lord Grey, and they did conspire to have him removed um, from power because they were they were related through the um, the would be kind of the York to call it the Yorkist line is slightly inaccurate because that's much later. But the um, they were of, of they were related through the same is through different different sorry Plantagenet. Uh, relatives to Henry V and Henry IV, so they were kind of a throwback to the the reign of Henry the, uh, Richard II. Sorry, so um, their execution in the film I think is shot very well. Um, I like the fact that he confronts them personally, um, and then they're the executed outside. I think the shot's really cool, where it's like very very stark, and there's no he's just sat there in a chair in the in the sandy kind of like outside bit. I think it's um, it's very cool. Uh, and again, it's 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 kind of true to history. Obviously, it's been styled up to the to the millionth, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. I enjoy that bit as well. Yeah, it made me. It definitely this film definitely made me feel things. Um, mm. I don't know. It's sort of twisting and turning in my insides. Um, it was obviously not my real insides, my emotional insides. Um, <laughs> that would be very um, impressive if it, if a film could do that. But um, yeah, no, I agree. It was shot really well. Uh, I think whilst I've just said that it was an accurate uh, portrayal, it's also then really not accurate because one of the okay. kind of main <laughs> one of the main plot lines in this is the the French assassin that he sent to kill Henry. Mm. There is no reported um, record of a French assassin sent to kill Henry. There is no real kind of um, goading from the French to attack England, none of that. The the reason why Henry decides to invade France is kind of a little bit lost to us. Uh, obviously, we are still in the Hundred Years' War at this point. Um, so parts of France um, are still under English control. Um, but Henry kind of looks back onto his um, great-grandfather, Edward III, and sees, well, I can, you know... I want to uh, replicate what what my great granddad did, and I want to I want to invade France, and because he's still got a very 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 loose claim to the French throne at this point through Edward III, um, so he can claim can claim the throne. They're still quartering the the royal coat of arms with with the fleur de lis, um, but the the introduction of this French assassin is pointless, and it's a plot device, and I don't really appreciate it. I do appreciate that he speaks in French, though. And I would love to have seen more of Timothy Chalamet speak more French. A, he's a French speaker. And B, Henry V would have spoke a lot of French. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I, and I would I, have liked to have seen that. I quite enjoyed the assassin plot, but then I didn't know the fact from the fiction. Mm. Um, I think if it was real, it's fine. Yeah. But because I guess it makes sense to put it in because then it it makes you uh, like a casual watcher understand. Oh, that's why because he was nearly assassinated. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but um, but one of the the main characters in this film. I've mentioned um, before, played by uh, Joel Edgerton, is Sir John uh, Falstaff, who is not a real person, but he is the one of the main protagonists in the um, works of Shakespeare. So he is accurate to the Shakespearean work. Okay. Um, he plays the kind of military, kind of rough and ready friend advisor to Henry V, um, who's kind of the the bad influence, but he's got you know he's got Henry's. Uh, best interests at heart, and he um, he he's brought into the fold when they decide to invade France, um, and he's um, he's played really well, and I like the character of John Falstaff. Um, he's probably what Shakespeare would have wanted him to be, kind of jovial, kind of a bit you know rough around the edges, you know a real you know military man who's not about airs and graces and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the opening of the first sort of the scene setting of the film, and I and I think they do a a decent job of that bit. Yeah, I mean, I am terrible at watching films normally. Like, I'll I'll have my phone to hand, or I'll have a piece of paper, and I'll be writing stuff mm. down. Um, for whatever, my mind runs at a hundred miles an hour. But this one, I actually just sat there and watched it, so it had it piqued my interest. Um. Which is a good sign. Yeah, I I was the same with you, really. Like, I'll, I'll I'll stick a film on or a TV show and I'll just watch it in the background. But I was ready for this to come out when it did come out and I was excited. And I've watched it a fair few times now. And it's not the most exciting film through a lot of it. But when it is exciting, it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is kind of where in the film it, it steps it up a notch. Um, and we see the massive invasion fleet um, heading over to to France. Um, and this is kind of where it gets better for me. I like the first part of the film, but I much prefer the, the second part. Um, Henry obviously invades and they lay siege to Harfleur, which is, again, accurate to the history. Um Henry V follows very closely the campaign, the Cressy campaign of 1346, um, which um, Edward III was so successful. He, he knows he needs to take Harfleur. It's a, an important port and it's an important fortification that he can then use to uh, have like a beachhead in France and um, kind of explore uh, Normandy through there. But they do it quite well in the sense that I love the fact that they just show the trebuchets constantly firing at night. A, it's a really nice looking shot and B, it's accurate because the siege lasted far too long. It was months long. There was just no chance they were going to break through. The only thing they could have added that would have made it more accurate would be cannons. He didn't have many, but he, they did have some kind of like gunpowder guns and very primitive uh, cannons that they used. They eventually did make a, a breach. And this is where we get the famous uh, once more into the breach scene uh, and speech in Henry V by Shakespeare, where they planned to attack Harfleur, which you see them kind of toying with in, in the film. Uh, but again, like in real life, they don't have to. The, the citizens go, you know what, 
the gig is up. Sorry, mate. We'll come over to your side. Uh, half floor is half floor is taken, and it takes like I said, it takes far too long. There is, they kind of hint at it in the film, um, this idea that the there's dysentery in the camp, which if you read Shakespeare, you know that oh it was awful, everybody was sick, people were dying. Realistically, it wasn't that bad. Yes, there was dysentery. Yes, it was a siege, but quite a lot of, because it was so close to England, they were able to ferry the sick home and get you know fresh soldiers. Uh, in so it wasn't as bad as Shakespeare and this film makes. Mm. But uh, what did you think to the uh, kind of the siege scene? So I really enjoyed it. There's something about them. Um, I don't know what they're officially called. You said it earlier, but the slingshotty things. Yeah, the, trebuchets. The trebuchets. I love them. If you go to any mm. uh, sort of country house uh, or, or castle, they tend to. Well, some of them do. So Warwick Castle has one, um, and they yeah. do displays with them, and they're an impressive piece of kit. Um, to see them amazing, yeah, and to 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 know that they were transported um, around uh, with no sort of real roads or, or or sort of commodities that we we have today. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I really enjoyed that scene. It looked beautiful when it was shot at night. Um, I'm sure the people on the other end of the um, uh, the fire were not as happy, <laughs> but it, it made a good yeah. scene, definitely. And it, it, it set the tone for what was to come, I think. Mm. Yeah, it, it does a really good job of setting up the, the Agincourt campaign, which this is. Like I said, it's pretty much, or it's supposed to be in Henry V's mind, a carbon copy of the Cressy campaign from, what, 70 years previously, which was so successful um, in decimating Normandy, taking Calais, beating a massive French army. Um, but after the siege of, um, of Harfleur, it, it, they do a good job in the film of kind of this sense of dread that we need to, we need to get home. We've, we've done what we can. It took far too long. We've had too many losses. We need to go. We need to get to Calais. Um, and you see them, you know, on the march to Calais. And it's, it's, it's seen as this kind of like death march where, you know, it's all very somber. And, you know, the, um, the clergymen are being carried in the litters. And um, it's very, very desperate, which isn't the most inaccurate depiction of the Agincourt campaign. But it, like I said previously, it's not, it's, we're taught Agincourt as this last ditch effort of, you know, the, you know, we few, we band of brothers, all that. Realistically, it wasn't that bad, but I'll get on to Agincourt um, in a few minutes, because obviously that's the kind of the, the diamond in the rough as such for this film. But um but yeah, the move to the move towards Calais is accurate. That's what Henry V wanted to do. He didn't want to really meet the French army in uh, open combat um, because it was much bigger and it was filled with knights. Um, but um, as you can see in the film, the the English army is made up predominantly of lightly armored archers, um, which again is accurate um, of the numbers for the Agincourt campaign are all over the shop. Depending on what book you read, what article you read, what film you watch, you'll get different numbers for both sides. Let's go with about 9,000 Englishmen left after Harfleur, of about, of which about 8,000 were probably archers. So um, I'm going to throw something out there now. Mm-hmm. So 
the English are renowned. Yeah. So it's written in our history that archers are a um, are a main part of our military. Um, why do you think archers were so good in England? They had. Oh, well, I'm glad you asked, Dolly. Because this is one of my favourite subjects. I I love talking about the longbow. I love talking about the Cressy campaign and the Agincourt campaign. Um, and it goes back much, much further than that, you know, to the to Edward I's attacks in Wales um, on the native Welsh. The Welsh would use um, kind of guerrilla tactics, uh, like raiding and antagonising this massive English force with, with longbows. They would use these very mobile, very very simplistic. I don't want to say simple because they weren't simple, but they were very, they weren't the most, they were complex. They were complicated to use, but they were, they were ready, ready on hand because they were hunting tools. They were farming tools. Um, eventually Edward the first picked them up and then would eventually, you know, put them into his armies and they were used a little bit. Um, and then Henry the second, uh, sorry, Edward the second was useless he did not use any longbows, really. He could have used them at the Battle of Bannockburn, but didn't. That was a massive English defeat. And then, every, well, my favourite, Edward III was the most famous user of, of longbows, other than Henry V himself. Um, he was a very astute military commander. He, again, attacking in Scotland, the Battle of Halladon Hill, um, which I wrote an article on recently. Um, <laughs> in... Is that at <laughs> thehistorycorner.org? It is at thehistorycorner.org. Um, you can also find us at History Corner blog. History Corner. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop plugging for now. Anyway, um, yeah. So the the Battle of Halladon Hill in 1333 was one of the first times that an English king had used mass longbows. Essentially, the slow-moving Scottish shiltrons, which is mass pikes and spears, were marching through the mud up to the English positions, which were much. Um, uh, lighter in terms of manpower, but much better armoured and uh, equipped in terms of longbows. And they absolutely decimated the slow-moving um, Scots. Um, so yeah, fast forward to the Cressy campaign. So like 10, 13 years later, the Battle of Cressy is won essentially on the strength of the longbow. Again, slow-moving, muddy fields, French cavalry and Genoese crossbows with shorter range, in the rain, were moving towards the English lines, and the longbows, with their range, their power, their rate of fire, were able to rain down hell, essentially, on the oncoming French. Um, and it just became the staple. Edward III made it so it was the law to practice on Sundays. Uh, everybody had to be able to use one. They were incred You had to be incredibly strong to, to fire these bows. They were, they were sort of six, seven feet in length with draw weights up to like 200 pounds, insane amount of strength you would need to use these. And by the time of, of, of Agincourt and Henry V, they were the cornerstone of the, of the English army and they were known throughout Europe uh, and probably throughout most of the known world that the English and the Welsh longbow were, was the, you know, the machine gun of the, of the late Middle Ages. Um, and they were, they were feared. They weren't a, they weren't a cheap um, kind of like, Oh, it's the peasant's weapon. It's the it's the underdog's weapon. Not at all. It was it was a it was chosen for a reason, and it was because it was so so powerful and so deadly on mass. Have you ever fired a longbow? No, but I would very much like to. I was going to buy one, but my <laughs> girlfriend said uh, no. 
It's walking, on the list of things I'm going to buy when I finish my degree. <laughs> walking down the streets of Sheffield with a longbow might get you in a bit of trouble. Yeah, I mean, I don't live too far away from Sherwood Forest, which is obviously the 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 home of the legendary Robin Hood. So I could just be like, ah, it's all good. You know, we've done this for, 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 for thousands of years. But uh, no, I... Um, not much of Sherwood Forest left, is there? No, I mean, I used to live, not to digress too much, but I used to live in a, in a horrible little town called Worksop, um, which is about five minutes away from uh, a place called Edwinstow, which is a lovely little village. Uh, and just outside of Edwinstow is Major Oak, which is like, like a thousand-year-old tree which apparently Robin Hood used to like live in or live under or live near. And, and that's a really, really cool piece of history to go and see if you ever get the chance. Um, but yeah, so longbows are super important and, and quite, quite, um, quite, it's well documented, obviously, like you said, that England and longbows are synonymous, but I think for, for good reason. Um, it's, a, it's a part of our history that definitely shaped a lot of, a lot of what happened. But yeah, I guess we should now move on. That's a perfect little segue into the actual Battle of Agincourt, which is the the centerpiece of this film. Um, so in the film, we see the the English army. They're tired, um, and they are you know they know that the massive French army of let's say up to thirty thousand. A lot of them are heavily armoured uh, knights on horseback, kind of the opposite of the this rural peasant, it's not accurate, but the kind of the underdog English army full of full of archers. Um, and you see them worried about, well, what can we do? We should sue for peace. We can't get to Calais. It's all bad. It's all bad. It's all bad. Um, and then you see um, uh, John Falstaff, who's like, it's going to rain. I know it's going to rain. We can beat them with our longbows, uh, which obviously is nice with hindsight and nice foresight into actually what happened. But... Um, they did agree that they had to meet the French in battle. But there is a scene in this bit that is probably the worst part of the whole film. I'm not sure if you know what I I'm know referring to. I know where you're to. going. Is it with the children? No, way worse than that. The children bit is, is, is delightful compared to what I'm talking about. Right, okay. I'll well, let you talk about the children because okay. I know it's something that you are passionate about. <laughs> Passionate about the kids, you know, the, the, the future and all that jazz. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, like I say, I'll let you, I'll let you go into a little bit about what, what, what happens with the kids at the, um, when they're, you know, camped near the French army. Uh, yeah. They don't know the French army is there at that point, I don't think. Um, but yeah, if you want to go uh, go into a little bit of detail about that. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm assuming this is uh, for dramatisation. Um, mm, I would assume, um, but there is a point where the English are, are they're, they're camped out in their tents, and there's there's obviously the the there's kids with them. I don't know why there's kids with them. Um, do kids normally go on battles? Uh, do they go on marches? Um, um, I mean, it certainly wasn't out of the question, in a sense that they would probably be ferrying ammunition and like you know, looking after the lords and the nobles, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. there wouldn't be that many. I mean, anyway, they're, they're there in this scene. So the kids have, uh, they've gone off while the adults are resting and they're playing in the woods um, and they're having a, a fun time. And then all of a sudden um, there is um, 
the French come in, and a couple of French come in, and one of the um, boys gets shot with a longbow, I believe it is, or, or something similar, um, and he gets killed. Okay, so the other boy gets mm. chased, and he's absolutely terrified. And anyway, he gets caught, and they um, they basically say to him, like, what we want you to do is send a symbol back to your your people. Can you do that for us? And this poor kid, <laughs> they hack the head off the <laughs> other. They hack the head off the other kid that's just died, and then the other boy is is like holding this boy's head and walks out of the woods like into sort of the the field and the tents where the English um, are holding this dripping head of this young boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's awful. But again, it's, I think it's kind of similar to the assassin or the ball. It's a, it's a, it's a plot device to just carry the story on a little bit to kind of yeah. add this sense of, Oh, the French are very close. They, they mean business. They want to, you know, literally cut the heads off of us. Um, but that's not the scene that I was talking about in terms of the worst part of this film and I might have jumped a little bit ahead of myself I'm not quite sure chronologically where this is thinking about it it's the scene where the Dauphin so um, Robert Pattinson's character meets Henry V in the tent we have to talk about Robert Pattinson's French accent in this film it's I uh, I like Robert Pattinson. I think he's a good actor. I I think he's probably a sound dude. I, you know, he's probably cool. But his 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 French accent is awful. It's it's painful. It's so bad, and the the interaction between the two of them is is terrible. The fact that he's like, I want to speak in English. It's simple. No, they wouldn't have spoken English. They would have spoken French if they ever met, which they didn't. Because the Dauphin was nowhere near the Battle of Agincourt. He had nothing to do with this fight whatsoever. Yes, he was obviously, he was very important in government because his father um, was mentally very, very ill. He believed his bones were made of glass. Um, So his wife and his son, the Dauphin, essentially ran the government. But that scene, to me, breaks this film a little bit. It just makes it, that scene anyway, that's unwatchable for me. It's terrible. What did you think of his accent? Well... I just want to know your your morals here because you're, to me, having a, li- <laughs> having a little boy's head cut off to someone doing a bad French accent, um, I know which one I would see as worse. Okay, but... I'll explain because I understand my where you're coming from. So, okay. the film is about war and death, so I will expect and accept death. You know, it's horrible and it's nasty to see, especially when it's kids. But it's it's a it's a legitimate and accurate portrayal of the fifteenth century. But Robert Pattinson as a Frenchman is unforgivable. And it's by far the worst part of this whole film. I am not a massive um Robert fan anyway. I don't <laughs> like many of his films. I think mm. he ruined Harry Potter. I think wow. uh, I don't like him in um, anything, really. Um, he just irritates me. <laughs> so, um, yeah. At first glance, I didn't realise it was him. It took me a while to mm. realise who it he was. He looks great. 
He looks yeah. great in the film. He looks but, uh, he looks the part. Yeah, I mean, I I would have quite happily watched the whole film in French. I love a subtitled film. Agreed. Um, if it absolutely, was, if it was more um, sort of honest to the story. However, they'd mm. lose a lot of an an audience. Yeah, they'd lose a massive English speaking audience, which mm. you've got to think that's that's America, England. Yeah, um, too big, sort of. Um, countries that consume netflix yeah i mean it would have been accurate to have more french i think the thing to remember here is henry v did speak english as his first language it's his father edward the henry the fourth sorry was the first english king really since the conquest that wasn't he was very 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 noble he was you know first cousin to the king and but he was brought up as a as a noble he wasn't brought up as a king so his first language was english yeah and he was the Yes, Edward III was a big fan of English and he spoke a lot of it and he introduced it as a legal language. But Henry IV and then Henry V were the first kings to really, you know, English became the first language. But French was still the language of the affluent and it still would have been nice to hear a little bit more of it. I thought but, you were going like to say said, the language of love then. <laughs> oh, it's always, it's always been the language of love, French hasn't it? Maybe, maybe Italian for a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, I, I agree. It would have been nice to get a little bit more French in, but I understand again why they didn't do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've we've dwelled on the on the on the terrible French accent, um, and I'd like to move on to the um, like I said, the best bit of the film, which is the Battle of Agincourt. Um, what did you know before you watched the film about Agincourt? Literally nothing. I know it. I knew it as a mm. date in yeah uh, a chronological order of British history. Um, and French yeah. history. That's it. I didn't. Yeah. Cool. I didn't know anything. More. And what what did you think to the to the film portrayal of it without knowing what actually happens? How did you think it went? Well, so you see a lot of these uh, the big battle scenes in a lot of these films, and they're they're very they're um, sort of sexed up. They're glorified. Like there's a lot of. Um, you don't you don't see the stuff I feel like you saw in this film. So with the mm. obviously they were on a hill, they were on an embankment. There was rain, there was mud, um, there was lots of people slipping and falling in their very heavy chainmail, etc. So I feel like it was a really honest mm. portrayal of of war and battle. And actually, it's not that glorious. It was messy, and it felt messy. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it felt true. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's where I was with that one. Mm. No, you spot on. I think I think a lot of the time when we look at we look back at history from a, like a casual point of view, we see it as very, very noble, very chivalric, very pretty, very everything's very fancy and you know, the the tip of a sword. Everything's really nice. And realistically, it wasn't like that. It was in the minds of the people that thought it was a noble thing to do to fight and to die for your king and your country but they they do a a decent job i'll give my reasons why i don't say a great job but the to kind of set the scene for people uh, listening um the battle of agincourt is a famous 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 um battle in in english and anglo-french history it's it's one of the one of the few victories the ones that we like to talk about, because we only in this country we only talk about the things we won, really, mm -hmm. um, which is a shame. Yeah, so um, we lost the Hundred Years' War. Uh, spoiler alert for those that didn't know that. Um, 
But yeah, the Battle of Agincourt is one of the one of the victories that in this country we love to talk about because we only talk about our victories. They get the terrain fairly right. Um, we don't know exactly where the Battle of Agincourt was fought. Obviously, it's fought near the village of Agincourt in northern France. Um, but the actual location is kind of lost to us a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, the English army was set up accurate to what, you know, what we have at the bottom of this hill. It wasn't too much of a hill in real life. There was a slight hill, but it wasn't too bad. Um, with the, um, as you see, John Volstaff talking about his plan to have the the dismounted men at arms um, kind of advance while the archers formed a crescent moon shape behind them. Again, fairly accurate. And then the French, seeing the tar- this juicy target, would charge them on their heavy horses and, you know, um, and that's, that would be that. So what I like is the fact that the they get the armour of the of the um of the common sort of the uh, archers fairly accurate so the famous tin hat um and the relatively simple kind of like uh like a leather gambeserm or something like that with some mail if they were um if they had a bit of spare cash um for the most part they get those guys fairly right um the actual the men at arms of the knight that have dismounted are stood on foot they do a decent job of. There's a lot of mix of weapons. A lot of them are holding pole arms, sort of like two-handed pikes and things like that. Very good. And the one thing they get really, really badly wrong is there's just no heraldry. There's no flags. There's no... Nobody's wearing anything that says who's who. Um, which, if you think about it, in the 15th century, how the hell are you knowing who you're killing if you can't see their face or, you know, their banner or whatever? I've got that written down. Literally, yeah, how good. do they know? How do they know who they're fighting? Exactly, exactly, and that's all they needed to do was have a couple of flags, and it would have been a hundred percent better. This scene, yeah. Um, the flanking army that Henry V is part of, kind of the detachment off to the right hand side, isn't accurate, but it's not like the worst portrayal of it, because essentially what happens in a battle is during the battle things are going quite well. Um, and the archers run out of ammo and they flank around the sides and come in from the sides and the back and literally start beating the friends to death with mallets, um, which is kind of what that scene shows. Um, there was no flanking force. There was archers in the forests, but there was no like big flanking force, especially not one led by the king himself, who was in the most plain armour possible. I like it as a stylistic choice. I think it looks very nice. You know, the breastplate and the and the um, just the, the, the chainmail um, kind of undershirt. But he would have been in the finest armour imaginable. You know, it would have been painted with like fleur-de-lis and the, the English leopards, and he would have had a crown on his helmet, which he doesn't wear because he's in- a main character. Can I just go back to that? English leopards? <laughs> yes. As in, the, as in the animal, the leopard. As in, the you know, the three lions? Actually, leopards. Is that what they're called? Mm-hmm. So the it's originally brought over with Richard the um, First, and they I, I, because if you Google medieval lion, it's one of the best things you can Google, uh, because nobody knew what they were, nobody knew how to draw them. It's like any like exotic animal, they just ridiculous drawings of them. So I'm I'm pretty confident that it's like they knew that these big cats existed, they really know what they were. So it's probably a leopard, might be a lion, 
But it just the, the two words are kind of interchangeable. But they're they're referred to as the English leopards or the the three lions, which is kind of the modern um, take on that. Okay, I've got images in front of me now, and they're majestic. It looks like one of them's got a moustache. Yeah, you can see when people you think, oh yeah, you've probably seen a lion. And then others, you're like, yeah, you've no idea what a lion is. You've I like never them, seen though. one it's before. Out of a, They're um, wicked, like a Narnia um, mm. tail, isn't it? Great. It's um, you want to wait till they draw like eels and fish. They have no idea what's in the sea either. That's great. Um, but yeah, so they really could have jazzed Henry up, but he's a main character, so they don't wear ha- they don't wear helmets which is a problem in games, in films, in TV. Nobody who is a main character wears a helmet. He would have had a full, probably a full helmet covering at least the vast majority of his face with a golden crown on it. Because famously in the battle, he gets hit on the head, which chips his crown. So that doesn't happen. He's not wearing one. Um, But on top of things they could have made better is one of the most famous parts of Agincourt is the stakes I don't mean there was a Gordon Ramsay restaurant serving filet mignons. It was the where, wooden steaks at the arch. <laughs> where you salivating. Which I, would, I would salivate. Call back to another episode <laughs> for those that, that don't know. Um, yeah, so the archers were instructed to, and they have done this previously. They did it at Cressy. They did it at Poitiers to um, essentially cut a wooden stake and stick it in front of them to, to stop uh, cavalry hitting them head on. Because um, archers' one weakness is heavy cavalry. Obviously, a horse with a very heavily armoured knight with a lance or a sword is going to rip through he- uh, lightly armoured archers. But there's no stakes in the film. And that is a big, wait for it, mistake. Yes. Why, why, didn't, why didn't they put them in? It's such a crucial part of that battle. And it's such a simple stakes... thing, isn't it, that mm. makes a difference? Um the stakes I always find really brutal in these battles. Awful. They're, they're Horrendous. Ang- they're angled, aren't they? So if you go into yes. them, that's it. You are, you're a goner. Or normally the horse is a goner. I mean, the poor horse. Um, but yeah, they're awful. And actually, them tactics still lasted right up until World War Two. You look at all the concrete sort of spikes that were, that were yep, put out. Tank it traps was, and, yeah, it was and barbed to, wire, yeah. It was to stop... Um, it was if you come towards us, you're going to have more damage to you than mm. it is to us. So, yeah, um, interesting. But yeah, those are the things I think they could have done better. So add some flags, add some stakes and make Henry look a bit fancier. And I'm happy with it because the actual battle itself, like you alluded to earlier, it's very muddy. It's very messy. It's horrible. It's one of the most brutal battle scenes I've ever seen. And I absolutely adored it. It was great. It was, it, like I said, it was messy. There was people just fighting on the floor in the mud, being drowned, and that's a really good portrayal of Agincourt. Yeah. Obviously, we we hear it from the winners because history is written by the victors, but the English lost very, very few, maybe maybe only in the hundreds, whereas the French lost thousands. Um, but um, so the, this portrayal of the of the French throwing horses and men at the at the English lines was was accurate. Um, they didn't use archers as much as I would like them to have done. They should have shown more volleys. They should have shown more men being hit by archers, not killed by archers. Because something really important to remember is the even though the longbow was like super powerful, it was definitely not enough to pierce plate armor. Okay. Not unless you were very close, anyway. But blunt force trauma of just constantly being hit by literally thousands of arrows. Say there was eight thousand archers. 
say they could all they were all firing a very pessimistic five arrows a minute, you know, that's a lot of arrows every yeah. minute for hours until they run out. Oh, um, so think being hit by, yeah, you and your horse, your poor horse is just being absolutely pepped by these archers and these arrows. Um, and they could have done a little bit more with that, but the actual brutality of the fighting was great. What I didn't like is when Henry V is punching that guy in the head when he's got a helmet on, because that'd break your hand. Um, but the actual end of the Battle of Agincourt is where it they just decide to do whatever they want with the story, where the Dauphin turns up in his really fancy black armour, which is, I like it. It's not accurate. It's too... It's too um, it's too fancy, it's too Hollywood. But then he, he does the cool little sword flick, which I think is a really cool little like nod to the fancy French. And then there's just Henry with his little war hammer. Um, and then, spoiler alert, all of the English that have for some reason stopped fighting just jump on the Dauphin and kill him. Like I said, didn't happen. The Dauphin wasn't there. Unnecessary. But one other thing they did leave out is the mass slaughter of French prisoners. Um, on the orders of Henry V. I'm not going to go into the details of that because there is a lot of conflict in stories on whether it was it was necessary because they couldn't keep them, they thought a counterattack was coming, etc. Um, but they could have done that and they didn't. Um, but yeah, that's the Battle of Agincourt and I thought they did a pretty decent job. They could have just done a lot better. Um, but yeah, then we kind of get to the end of the film which is just kind of ties it all up nicely. What, what did you think of of the meeting of you know of Catherine of Valois, his, his future wife and things like that? Yeah, so I'm after the battle. I was kind of feeling a bit somber. I was just like, oh, this is mm. awful. Like this is just so messy. And then I put myself in a lot of historical uh, films or uh, books that I read or something. I try and put myself like, what would I do? Like, because we we like, how would I react to that? And like, I'd yeah. be a mess. <laughs> like after all of that. So I kind of my note taking got a bit um, slower after that so um i have you're gonna laugh at this so i have wood paneling i am a fan mm. so i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the wood paneling right <laughs> at the end of the film um, yeah i was just looking at it going yeah that's really nice like i really like that that's that's proper cheered me up in this film um yeah. so yeah that was sort of the the depth of my notes after that battle yeah. it kind of took it out of me as well as the yeah. characters i guess in the film it's certainly a change of pace and i don't know necessarily if it's a welcome one because i'm kind of left deflated after the battle in a way because i'm like whoa all my energy's up all my adrenaline's up oh he's gonna meet the king of france who's completely coherent and not made of glass anymore which they really could have played on in the film and he just has a meeting with his his daughter, Catherine, who becomes his wife. Um, they speak about him being a usurper and it ties a bow nicely on, on the end of the story. Um, and uh, I think it's a decent end to a film. They could have carried it on, really. Yeah, they could have carried I mean, it on to Henry V's death. There might be a part two. Who knows? Oh, I hope they do. I um, really hope they do. There's a note that I've missed out here, and I don't know where it was in the film, but again, this is where my mind goes sometimes when I'm watching films. So at one point, um, so King Henry and his friend, which I can't remember his name, it's his pal right at the beginning. Um, mm. So him and his friend, they, they kind of uh, have a bit of a disagreement. It's, like, it's quite heated. And they, yeah. they, they're speaking so close 
to one another. Like, it's, <laughs> it borderline looks like they're going to have a bit of a kiss, <laughs> like a bit of a snog. It's really strange. Yeah. I was just like... It's really heated, yeah. Yeah, it's like really heated and then like throw into the passions of love. But yeah, it never happened. But it, it made me laugh because it looked like it was going to happen. I was just like, can you imagine if I'm watching the wrong version of The King? So it could be like the, <laughs> uh, the adult version of it. Like, could you imagine? Like, But yeah. anyway, that was that was a side note that I wrote down, which I thought was quite funny. Um, no, definitely. It's um, So what would you give this film out of 10? If you were to rate it out so of 10. So 10 being the highest... 10 being the best film you've ever seen, one being um, Russell Crowe's Robin Hood, which is the worst film I've ever seen. Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? It's on Braveheart level, that is. I think it's worse than Braveheart. Mm, Yeah. I'm going to put it out there. Potentially. Um, (laughs) What would I give it out of 10? I would give it a... Seven. Yeah. I'd probably agree with you there. I think what it does well, it does really well. But what it does bad, I can kind of forgive. Yeah. Um, it's definitely in the higher um, section of that top ten. Um, yeah. Rather than the... It, 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 it told a story and it did its job. It did what it was meant to do. The accuracy yeah. might not be correct. Um, but then what historical film is yeah, 100% exactly. correct. Um, yeah, so I, a seven for me, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd give it a seven or maybe even push it to an eight just because I've got a soft spot for Henry V and Timothy Charlemagne. Um, <laughs> he is who... a very <laughs> handsome young man, isn't he? Yes, um, he is. I have now, uh, on one of your notes from earlier, I've now um, got medieval fish and eels in front of me. Brilliant. I love this. We need mm. to bring these... Um, creatures we, back love it we should do an episode on medieval drawing of animals badly right that, that would be that would be good Dumb. because uh, they li- literally list. have no idea what animals were i think they just heard like oh elephants yeah they're massive sweet i'll just draw something massive and that'll be an elephant so um was. but yeah um yeah i I'd, I'd um i've enjoyed doing that that was uh that was another fun one. Yeah, that was good. I mean, obviously, you've got the knowledge to back that one up. So I was kind of, I felt like a bit mm. of a um, a backseater in that one with my silly comments like uh, <laughs> wood panelling is fun. But um, yeah, I enjoyed that. And if anyone else enjoys it, then um, tell me. If people didn't enjoy it, tell Chris. Um, That's how it goes. Yeah, because... <laughs> Yeah, I don't have negativity in my life. I'll have none of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we're going to do some more of these, hopefully. Um, I have mm. got a massive back catalogue of editing to do now. <laughs> so I will try and yeah. get things out as quickly as possible. Um, I've also got an article that I need to finish for the um, historycorner.org. That's the historycorner.org. <laughs> um, <laughs> Seamless. Uh, se- yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll bring you some more um, episodes soon. We're going to finish the, the Stuarts and then we'll we'll get some more topics on the go. Um, again, it's that time of, the, time of the show. If you want to plug anything, Chris, please do. Always take an opportunity to plug. Um, yeah, as you've as you've already beautifully 
uh, thumbed into the episode, um, you can find us at the historycorner.org, um, where you can find a direct link to uh, this podcast. Ironically, you're already listening to it at this point, so you won't need that. Uh, but tell your friends. Um, you can also find me uh, on Instagram at Chris Riley underscore um, and the History Corner on Instagram now at the History Corner blog. Um, we will share any and all articles, book reviews, film reviews, game reviews, um, submitted photos of historical places and things, um, which we are always wanting. So if you want to contribute, um, you want to get involved somehow to the History Corner, drop me a message, send us an email um at the history corner info uh, at gmail.com um but yeah also i'd just like to give a quick shout out to a really really wonderful website that i've had the pleasure of writing for uh, which is infocushistory.co.uk um i am just wrapping up a series on the crusades for them um what started as potentially a one or two episode um sorry article right up on the first few crusades has become a almost 15 part epic um, which i'm very very proud of and very very pleased to have worked with them. they are absolutely amazing guys over there they have helped me um tenfold um, but please 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 go check them out at infocushistory.co.uk you can all find also find them on instagram at infocushistory they are top dudes 